Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, or something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, darlings. I'm Katie Manning, and I play Joe Grant and Joe Grant Jones in Doctor Who, <laughs> and Iris Wildtime. Hello, lovies. <laughs> and you're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, darlings. Bye-bye. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the chilly task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally chilly three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we have our semi-casual fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've read for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and wily Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Good evening, even though we have lost all sense of day and night. Yeah, we really have, haven't we? Good God. It was a beautiful day here in Chicago. It was. I think we're having a thunderstorm in a few minutes. Oh, great. Let's just hope the power doesn't go out while we're doing this, or that lightning doesn't come through and strike my microphone, as I've always wanted. Well, that would be because you offended God, I think, right. because of yeah. the weather. Well, that well, probably would be. It's been raining all day here, and it's just finally clearing up, and I'm sending you guys a picture of what outside looks like for me now, just, <laughs> okay. to, ma- just to make you jealous. Oh, great. Well, <laughs> thank you ever so. Well, if you like what you're hearing, and I can't see that right now, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc depending on the amount you give per month you will receive among other possible goodies a randomly chosen bbc book not a target book since we know you have so many of them you have them frozen in cold storage along with your mark Daleks. just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air i'll explain that reference here in a minute and as usual we'd like to thank our regular patrons Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, and Stephen Pickering. Thank you, everyone. Thank Thanks, you. guys. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with our discussion of the penultimate story of Season 10, Planet of the Daleks. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. 
Doctor Who and the Planet of the Daleks, adapted by Terran Six from the script by Terran Nation, aired from 4773 to 51273, published by Target Books in October 1976, as of this recording in April of 2020. This title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audio book, 125 pages. Now, two things. One thing is that this is not only an abridged audio book once, but twice, because before his death in 1996, I want to say, John Pertwee actually read an audiobook of this book. So you okay. had a doctor reading an audiobook, which is amazing. I mean, David Tennant's done it since, but that was kind of a big thing. At the time. At the time. Tom Baker had done it, but it was kind of a different thing. It's kind of hard to explain. And for some reason, they decided to re-record it not too far back with Nicholas Briggs, who's the voice of the Daleks. So they got Dalek voices for it, which is awfully nice. That would be great if he did the entire story in the just as narrated by a Dalek. <laughs> yeah, oh my as a Dalek. It would be three times as long as it would need to be, though. Be- because think about it, when you speak as a Dalek, you're having to slow things down in that particular register. And yeah, it would yeah, you wouldn't be able to listen to it for too terribly long. Speaking of Daleks, I made a reference to Mark's Daleks, and I don't think I've ever talked about toy Daleks on this program ever, which is surprising because it's one of my passions. Uh, <laughs> so many of them. Here's the thing. In the big scene where we see the Daleks in that frozen cave, Mm -hmm. they decided to use model Daleks, which is a good idea because they needed multiple Daleks and you don't want to have to build that many damn Daleks all at once. The problem was they used Mark's Daleks. And this is enough of a problem that when they released this on DVD and when they re-released on Blu-ray... They updated the special effects, and one of the special effects shots that they updated was the shot of the Daleks in the frozen cave, so that they look like proper Daleks. Pull up what these things look like, just to show you. I'm going to do a side-by-side comparison for you, in fact. Now here, as we know, is the standard Dalek, right? In fact, this is the color and shape that they would have had at the time that this uh, episode was being recorded. This is a Mark Stalek. Do you see the problem? I mean, it's very colorful. <laughs> there is that. Yeah, sort of rubberized bumpers. Yeah. And a different slant, sort of, different angles. That's exactly the problem. Mark Staleks are shaped wrong. They have a much fuller skirt. So you're much... body shaming the Mark Stalek is what I'm I saying? am indeed. They are fatties. Fatty, fatty two by four <laughs> Daleks. They certainly are. Their body shape is all wrong. They shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> yes, they shouldn't be allowed to model as Daleks. But that's exactly what they did. They modeled as Daleks <laughs> in this uh, episode. And they got many of them, and they used them. And unfortunately, it's really quite obvious when you see the uh, episode. So that's why they ended up using CGI to redo that scene when they released it. So I'm I'm unclear on why they're wrong in this context. Were there... Both kinds of Daleks on the episode? No, that's okay. the problem. Okay. Yeah, because any school kid would have recognized that as the sort of Mark's Dalek that they probably had at home that they played with. Oh, it was actually the mass-produced toy they were using? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, so when you see that scene with the ice cave, it's all these little toy Mark's Daleks, which are really cute, but they're the wrong shape. 
So when they did the CGI recreation, they put in a lot of properly shaped CGI Daleks, which is uh, egregious in yet another way. But that's okay. I guess I they expected could... that it might have been a matte painting for that scene. No, no. Yeah. They actually did a little model shot, and it's great. It's just the Daleks are wrong. So there's that. It's, and if you talk to most, well, I won't say most fans. If you talk to many fans, they'll say that's not the only thing wrong with the story, but we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah. The story was meant to be the payoff for Frontier in Space, which Barry Letts and Terrence Dix imagined as the first six parts of essentially a 12-parter. On the same epic scale as the Daleks' master plan to round out the show's 10th anniversary. Now, you know you're in trouble when you're wanting to remake the Daleks' master plan. Mm. At this point, as a precondition of their having done Day of the Daleks with a different writer, Terry Nation, the creator of the Daleks, had first refusal rights on any story featuring them. This time, he had time to write the script himself, the first script he would write for the show since 1966. Problem is, the story ends up being a remix of several of Nation's previous scripts, such as the first Dalek story and parts of the Master Plan scripts. Now, you'll probably recognize those, but since neither of you actually read the first uh, Dalek novelization, you won't recognize just how derivative the story is, so I'll be interested to see what you have to say about it. Nation had always planned on naming one of the characters Rebek after his daughter Rebecca, he had also planned on naming one of the Thals as Petal, but the previous story had a character named Patel, so this one became Latep. See how that works? Uh. Very easy. Yeah. He had those crafty writers. Another change was to the beginning of the story to make it line up with the ending of Frontier in Space, which, as we know, had to be rewritten. Possibly the biggest change, though, was to the end of Episode 4, which would have ended with all of the Thals all of them being slaughtered by the Daleks. Hmm. With the Doctor and Joe being the only two characters for the last two episodes. The head of drama didn't care for that. And as if just to remind us that Nation hadn't written for the show since Hartnell's era, he had quite charmingly given each episode a single title. <laughs> which is just so cute. Okay. Alright, one other thing of note... For years, the only version of Episode 3 that existed was a black-and-white film recording. But due to a long process, which is way too detailed to go into here, that very film recording was used to recreate part of the color signal of the original episode, and combined it with computer colorization to finally release the full story in color on DVD. It's the weirdest thing. Some guy was watching it on American television, and he saw color pixels coming through occasionally because he had videotaped it and he said wait a minute there are little fragments of color what's going on the film had somehow captured some of the pixelation even though it was a black and white film and they were able to recreate it from those pixels it's bizarre it's like voodoo it's hmm. crazy but yeah it happened interesting yeah much more accurate than co computer colorization which as we all know Looks horrible. As for the book, what's so frustrating about that continuity break between the Space War and Planet of the Daleks, which I already told you about last time, is that the two books were released only one month apart, and since they were both released three years after the stories they adapt, it's unclear why the continuity disconnect even happens. 
You'd think that Malcolm Hulk and Terrence Dix would have, you know, had a little chin wag and said, you know, you need to keep to the television ending because we changed it. And Malcolm Hulk probably said, oh, no. So he left it as it was in the original script. Even well, straight. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just saying, if he's going by the script, then that makes sense. But yeah. yes, I, I it's, it's weird. It is weird. Even stranger. This is one of the few Doctor Who books from the Pertwee era that was ever translated into another language. In fact, I think it might be the only one. No, it's not. I'm thinking about Auton Invasion. A German translation was published in 1980, and I have a copy of it. I don't know why. I just do. Is so there a collector? Yes, well, that might be part of it. But <laughs> yeah, I can't read German, but I have it if I ever want to. All right, um, I've put you two through the dramatic readings ringer lately, so why don't I go ahead and do the back cover of this one, just to spare you. <laughs> okay, here we go. Joe peered through the panel and saw nothing. Yet someone had entered the cabin. She could hear hoarse breathing and stealthy padding footsteps. A beaker rose in the air of its own accord, then dropped to the floor the invisible enemy. After pursuing the Daleks through space, it's all of the caps, Doctor Who lands on the planet of Spiridon, Spiridon in the midst of a tropical jungle and finds more than Daleks. Vicious plants spitting deadly poison, invisible Spiridons attacking from all sides, and in hiding, a vast army waits for the moment to mobilize and conquer. All these caps. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Did the plants really spit poison? They mostly spit, like, foam and bacteria and, and moss and <laughs> well, I thought Joe was dying of it briefly. Yeah, it's fungus. But it, but it was a fungus, yeah. It was yeah. It was something growing on her. Right. Yeah. That's exactly, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, so it's mm. not the, I guess they're technically spitting poison because it does eventually kill you, but... Yeah. 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 I mean, and really, since we've read Mission to the Unknown and Dalek's Master Plan, we know that Terry Nation loves these plants that yes. kill them. Yes, I was thinking about Mission Unto the, un to the, uh, Mission Unto the Unknown. I've uh, made it more florid. I was thinking about Mission to the Unknown in the opening scene and thought it might be the same, turn out to be the same planet. Nope, not this time. Not this time, because the Varga plan actually exists on Skara, which is actually the planet of the Daleks. This, as, right. one, as one wag put it, this just happens to be a planet with some Daleks on it. It's a planet of the Daleks, yeah. It's precisely that. Hmm. Well, let's get your first impressions. Uh, Allison, what were your first impressions when you first received this? Well, I really liked the opening scenes, and Terrence Sticks often does a really nice job of setting a palpable scene, and so I actually liked the uh, the killer plants and the sort of sense of foreboding and uh, you know, sort of waking up mid-action. Uh, was it crazy about how Joe is portrayed as childlike in the opening scenes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but she gets over that pretty quickly. Yes, um, sure. So, they like I said, I, I often find the, the Terrence Dix books most interesting in the first few pages, and then later on it's just run, 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 shoot, shoot, shoot. And <laughs> I think this book fit into that scheme, uh, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoy his first few pages of establishing this world. I, I'm really tired of deserts and tunnels. <laughs> so, so jungle, jungle, and then later taking a sort of uh, rigged homemade hot air balloon up 
a ventilation shaft was all good fun to me. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Uh, Dalton, <laughs> what was your first impression? Uh, yeah, the like, like we've already said, the the title was a little misleading uh, with Planet of the Daleks. I was expecting them to actually be going back to Scarrow, <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, there's there's some there's some good bits in here. This is clearly the earlier days of Terrence Dick's writing, where he cares. There's lots <laughs> of good descriptions, lots lots of kind of meaty passages in here, but. It, it was it was a fun overall. Um, I think the payoff in the end was a little kind of eh, mm-hmm. but but overall uh, pretty pretty exciting. Um, good to good to see the Thals come back and oh gosh, what are the names? The the new species that's the Spiridons. Oh, the Spiridons. Spiridons, yes. Or Spiridons. I've never gotten it right. And I just watched um, the show a moment ago. Yeah, just re- reading about how they have uh, developed invisibility as a, a way to survive is interesting. So, Which is bizarre, given that it wouldn't <laughs> yeah. help them at all if they walk into a plant that's spitting fungus at them. No. But, <laughs> but I guess when you have giant plants that are, uh, you know, have tentacles that are coming to get you, it would maybe help. But. Yeah. I mean, if you go it does re- explain why they're interesting to the Daleks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it does. Though, it's really kind of a re- weird red herring, isn't it? Because yes. Yeah, because you've got this idea that oh, they've gone there to figure out how to become invisible, and if they do that, they'll be able to conquer the galaxy. But they can't do it for very long, and they get this weird light wave sickness that actually kills them if they do it for too long. Yeah, and we only see one example of a Dalek being invisible. Mm-hmm. Because that's all the budget would allow. <laughs> I thought it kind of worked, though, as an idea that this is a research facility. They think they're going to be able to figure out a way to do it. They haven't yet. They don't care what all they have to wipe out to figure out how to do it. But then when they were ready to, as punishment, kill everyone on the planet other than who they had enslaved, mm-hmm. uh, that seemed like poor resource management. <laughs> yes. Just a little bit. The well, well, they're trying to figure out the material. phenomenon and understand how to replicate it. it they're, they're destroying their... Le- well, not their literal constructed laboratory, but con- destroying the environment that they're trying to, to well, learn how to copy. I think they'd already figured it out, though. They just figured out that it wasn't as effective for them as they thought it might be. Yeah, well, they figured out how yeah. to do it badly. Yeah. Well, that's Daleks right. for you. There are complications. Oh, God. Always complications. And, again, another oldie but goodie from the Nation trope book. The idea of a plague or a bacterium that can kill everybody, which hits a little too much the nail on the head just now. But Oh, yes. And there are a couple of, uh, I was very amused at the PPE for, throughout, uh, amused in a dark, grim way. <laughs> <laughs> which PPE are we talking about? Personal protective equipment. Well, uh, I knew that, but. <laughs> uh, yeah. We all know now, yes, I did not know that terminology before. Doctor examined the bundle Taran had thrown to him and held two sets of plastic protective clothing and a spray. Very thoughtful of him, he said. <laughs> like he, he, he gave him a mask and a plastic coat and some hand sanitizer spray. <laughs> that was thoughtful of him. <laughs> yeah, that, that is crazy, isn't it? Sometimes these books mirror us just a little too well. Luckily, well, I was going to say there aren't Daleks running around, but I don't know if you heard about this. At the time we're recording this... There is a Dalek loose in Rogers Park. 
Yeah, well, no. There's a Dalek loose on the streets of um, a little town in England uh, because somebody got into a homemade Dalek and is tooling around <laughs> his town and is shouting in a Dalek voice, Humans must self-isolate! All humans must be dogs! All humans must self-isolate! By order of the Dalek! All humans must Okay, he is with, hilarious. Is there, her face is fully covered? I, well, he's in a Dalek, so I think he's probably <laughs> the safest he can be. Would you go within six feet of that character? I mean, it's actually no, not bad. It, yeah, yeah, it's it's hilarious. So we don't have invisible Spyrodons, but then we how might we actually, yeah, how would we know? That's <sighs> where the toilet paper's gone. That's where it's gone. That's why we're hoarding it, because otherwise they'll come in the night invisibly and get it. <laughs> the coyotes will take over, and they'll come take all our paper products. <laughs> that is bizarre. It really is. Okay, so where do we start with this one? Can we talk about the incredibly bloodthirsty doctor? Yes, please. All right, so I, for my screenshots here, I have at least six examples here, and I... I missed at least one because before I started uh, keeping track. So shall I do a uh, dramatic reading here? Oh, yes, please. Maybe it'll be a deadpan reading. <laughs> Weber was eager to tell him. Well, doctor's asking, wait, what are you going to do? Weber, Weber, Weber was eager to tell him, attack the Daleks and wipe them out. The doctor nodded thoughtfully. It sounded a very attractive plan. <laughs> one in here I missed, and then uh, a gushing flood of ice poured into the corridor, burying the Daleks. The doctor paused, looking back over his shoulder. Now, there's a bit of luck, he said cheerfully. Uh, the rest of the Daleks fired in unison, and Marat's smoking body was slammed across the corridor. So this time, it's not a Dalek who's dead. It's someone he theoretically should not want dead. The doctor made a few more adjustments, leaped back uh, as there was a shower of sparks and a bang. Few solid, he said with satisfaction. Does not care <laughs> that people are <laughs> crying around him and being led away. Uh, there was a tremendous roar as the disc exploded, and the Daleks were blown in all directions. Now, in all fairness, I think they were not blown into pieces in all directions, just blown around. <laughs> the doctor smiled in satisfaction. <laughs> yes. A couple more. Let's see here. Pell by six pairs of arms, a Dalek shot off the path like a rocket and splashed into the ice pond beside its leader. Well done, all of you. But remember, we still have more work to do. Our last one. Are they dead? Called the doctor. Lathrop <laughs> swallowed as he answered. I think so. The cold must have killed them instantly. Now, said the doctor more cheerfully, let's get the machine on the bank. <laughs> so it, it's it's the uh, it, the repeated use of the word cheerfully and smiled yes <laughs> but right. a little jig and whatnot <laughs> i mean we have we have seen previous stories where the doctor indirectly or directly killed or facilitated the expiration of various entities but usually he's pretty somber and circumspect and melancholy and regretful about it and he's just having a really big time here in a way mm -hmm. that, Seems a yeah. bit unseemly, and oh. uh, was repeated enough, I actually thought that there would be a bit of a chat at the end, with Joe saying something like, so, you sure got off on all of that <laughs> genocide, didn't you? Eh, <laughs> there's just him, Daleks. Well, and him <laughs> saying, well, you have to understand, they're not like the other aliens we've met, they've done this, this, and that, blah, 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 but no, no, he's just having a good time. We're not quite to the Christopher Eccleston level of hatred for the Daleks yet. <laughs> but we're, we're definitely getting there. The Eccleston level of hatred was definitely explained within the story. Like, yeah. The script was written in such a way that, I mean, I think the first 
uh, episode of the new series, we see him looking for whatever the imprisoned alien is, saying, you know, who are you? Do you need help? We can help you. And he's a Dalek, and he completely changes. So they've already established that he is someone who would generally try to help, and instead he's ready to kill, kill, kill. <laughs> Here, it's the, the lack of explanation that uh, took me aback a bit. Which is probably why on page 51, after they uh, destroyed the Dalek in the Dalek prison, we have, he glanced at the inert Dalek. Much as I have hold violence, I rather enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I think there was at least one I didn't get in there, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. The, which is weird because this is also the most human we've seen the Pertwee Doctor be. In fact, I, I love Pertwee in this story. I just wish I loved the story more because he has those humanizing moments with Kodal and the uh, prison... And then he notices everything going on around him, Dix tells us, and notices that Rebek is really upset mm -hmm. at what Taryn has said to her about, you know, I'm going to fail this mission because you're here. It's like, oh, for God's sake. Way to yeah, express your love. Yeah, I got thoughts about that whole scene. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, I've got thoughts galore about Rebek. We've got to get to those. But yeah, he's a little more bloodthirsty towards Daleks. As far as Thals go... Yeah, there's that one he didn't seem to care about, but then the story doesn't really care about him either. He's gone pretty quickly. I can't even remember his name. Well, yes, but we have a lot of people who die pretty quickly in some sort of sudden, you know, firearm blast in these stories. And usually we don't have the loving detail about the body smoking. <laughs> so it, was, no. it was a combination of the two. <laughs> yeah, I think that's... I think that's more Dick's the nation, to be honest, because he seems to like to give the Dalek weapons a little more oomph to them. Speaking of Dalek weapons, this is the second, and I believe last time, we will ever see a Dalek weapon used non-lethally, because they use it to take out the Doctor's legs temporarily. Mm -hmm. And... Allison won't know this, but Dalton probably does because I gave him that book. Because he went to school it. and I didn't, I guess. <laughs> no, no. I gave him the book in which it happens. I, I think I did anyway. It it happens to Ian Chesterton in the first Alex story. Ah. Uh. Yeah, so this is another one of Terry Nation's greatest hits. They Jelly just keep on Yeah, they just keep on coming. It, yeah. was, it was scary. It was something I did not expect them to do. Yeah, and they'll never do it again. They'll never do it again. That's it's why you don't expect it when it happens. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Let's go ahead and jump right into the Rebex stuff, because I have problems with it. It sounds like Allison does. Dalton, you might actually, too, or maybe not. But It seems like for once, Joe isn't the crying female. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just, to put, just to put it bluntly. Uh-huh. We got to have one. <laughs> it's contractually obligated. Yeah. God. Ridiculous. That's part of what's so maddening about it is the crying female bits aren't that bad in context. She's mm -hmm. upset by the smoking body of the guy she knows mm -hmm. who's just been, well, whom she has met once. Right. And she's upset that her boyfriend says awful things to her. Yeah. But, well, but she's yeah. not shown as like crying in fear like we sometimes have with the screaming female or, or sort of oh, being, I... being weak or cowardly. I thought for sure I saw the phrase sobbing in fear at least three times in this book. <laughs> okay, maybe I, maybe I missed that just out of willfulness. So it's another one of those moments when you think that the writer is going to say something fairly insightful and profound. 
is going to comment on an unhelpful trope and instead just fully commits to the trope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I can't quite get why, because Dix would have script edited this episode, so he knows what happened during production, and he knows that the actress who played Rebecca never shed a single tear because on screen she's actually kind of badass in her own way. So could I read a bit from this? Because yeah. those who have not, of our listeners who have not memorized the book may not remember what specific thing we are complaining about yes, or in please. the words of our commentaries, what we are being so negative about. Yes, thank you. We've got a full page conversation here, but we're told that Rebecca and Taryn were a, a couple on Scaro, and um, he wasn't necessarily expecting her to come on this uh, second mission. So he asked her why she came. She said, I wanted to be with you. And he is not happy. And he says, this is going to make it worse. How does my being here make things any worse? In a level voice, Taryn said, because I love you and that will cloud my judgment. I may hesitate to take risks, necessary risks, because I'll be worrying about you. And if my judgment fails, then the Daleks will win. Well, with, this is what Weber has been complaining about previously. So without her there, Taryn is already not taking risks that the <laughs> others think are appropriate. Yes. So he's saying he will, her being there will cause him somehow against his will and ability to resist to exercise the kind of poor judgment that those under his command already think that he's exercising. In other words, I don't take responsibility at all. Well, yes, like yeah, her being there is going to make him <laughs> behave differently. And I was kind of afraid, well, at this point, it, we're told she's in uniform, but it's not clear yet that she's um, not just a civilian or a cook, that she's, you know, fully a member of the mission, has firearms, goes and does things, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. I, so, she is, though. She is what? She is a member of the uh, military force or whatever it is that they are, because when she comes from the ship, she brings news that the Daleks are massing in force. Mm -hmm. So she must have some military intelligence. There's a chat he has with the doctor that's actually very nice. Um, but then we have Weber come in and say, I'm going to take these bombs and go blow up the ice cave. I'm abridging here. And Taryn basically says, no, no, I don't think you should do that. And I think this is going to be a great moment of Dix pointing out that Rebek being here has nothing to do about whether or not Taryn is or is not going to take certain kinds of risks. And, and then Faber blames it on Rebek being there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's because she's, what is it? It's because she's hung around your neck. Is that your problem? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, he deserves to die. What a prick. Well, it's just... <laughs> I, I actually was very pleased when we have Weber come back in, and I, I thought that it was going to be the opposite. I thought Taryn was going to say something like, well, I'm worried about my girl being here, and I thought Weber would say something smart, snarky about what else is new that you're too afraid to do things, and I think me doing. But no, we went totally the other direction. So, yes, we were on the verge of a moment of clarity, and then just completely whiffled. <laughs> whiffed it, whiffle balled it, kind of Whiffled like I it. did my the end of my statement there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, it is Doctor Who. How often have we seen that happen? Yeah. <laughs> it was very disappointing. That seems to be the case with these stories, because here's the interesting thing about Rebecca. She wasn't in the original draft. She was put there because Terrence Dix looked at Nation scripts, which were up to episode three or something, I think, at that point, because she hadn't come in yet, and said, you've got an all-male cast here. You realize this. The only female character is Joe. Can't we have a female character in here somewhere? 
and he introduced Rebek, and she seemed to only be there as the love interest. And he said, well, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but what Dix actually said to Nation was, well, she's bringing boobs, but what else is she bringing? And <laughs> that's when he decided to make her part of whatever military force they were on so that she would actually have a role to play. But it's still a paper-thin role, and that's basically it. She's there as the token female because, for once, Joe Grant is being kick-ass. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I shouldn't say for once. She was kick-ass And Rebecca's the one who climbs time. into the Dalek when Joe was actually not down for that. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. And I thought we might have a little bit of bringing it back around at the end where uh, oh, I'm mixing up names here, um, but where her They're fiance... They're uh, Yeah. Where her fiance says, so I guess maybe it was a good thing you came after all, but no, no, <laughs> no, none of that. No, of course not. Of course not. That would mean he was wrong. So I don't actually hate the premise of the initial conversation, just the fact that there was such good opportunity to bring it home that did not happen. Mm -hmm. It also seemed very odd to me that the doctor kind of sends Joe over to talk to her. It's like, oh. Okay, Doctor, well, you, you can talk to the guys and give them pep talks, but you can't talk to the one other woman on the planet and give her a pep talk. This is very odd, because I think he goes off and talks with, uh, who does he talk with at that point? Was it Taryn? Yeah, he talks to Taryn. It's actually a lovely scene. He said, you know, Taryn mm -hmm. can help responding to the sympathy in his voice. I'm not sure I can handle things anymore, because you're not made of stone. I have to leave this expedition, Doctor. It's a job that doesn't allow for human weakness. Perhaps they should have sent a machine. I thought I could act like one, said Taryn grimly. I was wrong. Good, said the Doctor heartily. The business of command is not meant for machines. Forget you're dealing with people's lives and you're no better than the creatures we came to destroy. Once we start acting like Daleks, the battle's already lost. And I thought that was a terrific scene. Now that is Dix. Yeah. There's a version of that in the script, but it's not quite, it doesn't quite pack the punch. That Dix gives it so that's Dix definitely bringing out one of the better qualities of the script which happens to be yet another rehash of one of Nation's great themes which is if you're terrified and you think you're not competent at something do it anyway because it may turn out that you're very good at it yes yes so good things in it and then just a, a fumble yeah it's, it's what he did with the first Dalek story, which also had Thals in it, which also had the same kind of breakdown of characters. And <laughs> in that first Dalek story, we had Ian Chesterton get into a Dalek and almost get killed by Daleks. So even that is Greatest Hits, which is why I, no, I'm not going to get started yet. Sorry. Well, there is a little bit of subversion here of the sort of screaming afraid female here where they're going up the ventilation shaft on uh, using a very unstable middle school science fair experiment. Yeah. <laughs> they, they're, they're clinging onto ropes, ascending. Rebecca with her eyes shut tight, spoke through clenched teeth. The only time I ever want to leave the ground again is in the rocket that takes me away from this planet. <laughs> Don't worry, said the doctor reassuringly. As long as you hold on tight, you're perfectly safe. And then, of course, they are soon like hurtling towards the earth. <laughs> exactly. well no no they actually they they manage when the uh improvised balloon rips they do manage to sort of you know, cling onto the side but that was actually poking fun of his condescension there where she's absolutely right yes <laughs> to, absolutely to be afraid right. of this they, they are, are in, fact, in all in, in danger of plunging 
Well, more of Dick's giving with one hand and taking away with another. And more of Nation doing yet another greatest hits thing, because in the original story, the Daleks, they go up an elevator shaft, and the Daleks are chasing them up an elevator shaft, and they have to throw something down the elevator shaft to destroy it, so... They Even have floating anti-gravity platforms before. I don't recall that. Not on television, because the budget doesn't really allow for them. In fact, it looks they they have to fudge that one. They have to do some camera trickery to make that work. It's not a CGI effect. Uh, well, obviously, it's not even a, a green screen effect. But in the comic strip in the 1960s, the well-regarded comic strip written by David Whitaker, by the way, uh, the Daleks, they had transolar discs which were these really cool anti-grav things that they roamed around on and you actually see them in the new series whenever you see the daleks appearing in the new series and they're floating on things and shooting people that's from the uh, comic strip and that's what this is supposed to be but <laughs> it's very obviously not and there's just the one of them using it so yes and they have to <laughs> they kind of have to send out for it <laughs> yeah like a whole team to get this one guy chasing after them yeah exactly oh i found the other good ppe uh, passage mm -hmm. from a belt pouch he took a tiny square of transparent plastic which unfolded into a complete protective suit cape hood and gauntlets all in one from his pack he produced a spray which dissolved the rubbery growth covering the tardis I'm like oh that is useful then <laughs> what are yes. those over here but of course, the budget isn't going to go to that. Yeah, stuff like that. Dixon's very good at expanding on and making it seem really much better than it would have appeared. So there is that. Though, I, I do want to keep talking about the bits of the script that he couldn't do anything about. But that's fine. What else stuck out to you? The Ice Kano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's like a slurpy. It's like a slurpy or an icy or a slush puppy. Yeah, that's that's Closest what I'm imagining. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not called that on screen. Believe it or not, that that sticks. Okay, thank God. <laughs> yeah, they never call it that on screen. It's it's really uh, yeah. That's that's special. Yeah, it's it's like slurpy. In fact, I thought maybe the pools were made of vodka. Because they're below freezing, and yet they still are in a liquid state. They're maybe going to get the Daleks drunk and then <laughs> leave before they sobered up. Well, the weird thing is something like that actually does occur, that the allotropes that they're talking about, those things do do happen. They're, they're actually part of uh, chemistry or physics or whatever field it's in. Well, it could have ended up to be could have ended up being something like salt water or something else chemical like that, but wasn't really explored yeah. further. I think it's mainly that Terry Nation was thinking of Doctor Who still as being an educational program because that's why he's doing this whole, you know, let's not glorify war thing because he's doing that. But he's also teaching the kids about allotropes. These actually exist in nature, kids. Or not in nature, but you know what I'm getting at. That's probably why that's there question the science education value of this particular story <laughs> i know right yeah it doesn't seem like it works too terribly well on any levels but ice canos definitely not god no <laughs> wouldn't it be great if he, <laughs> they, <laughs> sorry shove the daleks into a uh, a pool of baking soda and vinegar which is also what the planet's core <laughs> was made of <laughs> 
<laughs> they shined up really nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dissolved all the lime and the rust on them. <laughs> what gets me is they apparently have a weakness for cold. Yeah, it, it seems counterintuitive. Yeah, because if that's the case, how the hell are they tooling around in the vacuum of space? Because I would think that's a lot colder than, you know, just some ice cano on some planet's surface. But you push one into a puddle of ice cano, Slurpee, and down it goes, and it's dead. Yeah. Well, so they did dead. have to pry the covers open, I thought, to make sure, that the, make sure they finished drowning them and freezing them. Um, <laughs> yes. But yes, but but then I guess yeah. I, I also had the question of you know if you have to open the what do you call it the suit the carapace the casing, the casing. casing. The if you have to open the casing to let the water in or the whatever the the liquid was to affect the body temperature and stun or kill them. I thought well maybe maybe the idea is that the casing protects them when they're in space and other places. But then the ones mm -hmm. that are in stasis and dormant were also in casing and the temperature mm -hmm. was keeping them dormant. So I didn't Yeah. I didn't entirely understand and that might be something that I missed. No. No, not at all. You've in fact you've put your finger on a flaw that even I didn't notice, which is that yeah if they're inside that casing, the whole point of Dalek casing is, and we'll find this out in a couple of seasons, it's supposed to be a travel machine for the Dalek mutant inside. So essentially they're riding around in personalized tanks. So those tanks should be able to protect them from their outside environment, but apparently no one told their creator that because he has them being able to be killed by just being pushed into an ice cano. Because it would absolutely machine. make sense that it also controlled their temperature, that they are perhaps physically quite delicate, and that's another reason that they need the casing. Yeah, Dalek mutants are, Dalek mutants on their own are pretty vicious, but they are also fragile, and that's part of the reason why they're so vicious. It's because they're kind of scared, because they only have that casing protecting them from the outside world. It does explain a lot about their psychology. It explains nothing about why they should be so sensitive to cold, though. It is the weirdest mm -hmm. damn thing. And it never happens again. It's never going to be referred to ever again. So, I don't know. I guess they just don't conquer ice planets or something like that. They leave that to the Cybermen. Ugh. While we're on the subject of stupidity... <laughs> <laughs> how is it and i know this is happening for the sake of suspense but i've never understood how on the one hand the tardis has only three cylinders full of oxygen to keep the crew oh, alive yes. when they're in transit <laughs> and how on the other hand it draws air from outside given that they've been known to land in some really inhospitable environments before yeah so this is almost as bad as the time that, what, materialized underwater and water started seeping into the TARDIS, and you're like, what? But, but at, least, at least that was explained in the script. They said, you know, the Time Lords were breaking down the defenses. It should have defenses. How the fuck is that? How, did, how the fuck does that work? Even worse, there are three cylinders full of oxygen for this ship that is infinitely big inside. Mm -hmm. And he has to top them up manually? <laughs> yeah, he forgot thought, to do it? At first I thought the implication was he'd been knocked out for days and we had come no. into this story pretty late, but no. 
nope, nope. Um, they just weren't in, anticipating leaving Earth in the TARDIS and having to have the emergency supply of air cylinders, of which there are only three, for the whole ship. Oh, God. I, it's just, ugh, that drives me up the f***ing wall. Sorry. <laughs> just so dumb. But it's such a Terry Nation thing to do. It really is. Anyway, sorry. Moving on. <laughs> what else? Um, I think of the Daleks as being difficult to fight and difficult to kill, but apparently you can just toss a coat over them. Yes. And that works pretty yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. Cover up their eye. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I, I just thought see. that was going to be the big turning point in the plot. <laughs> oh, just all, all the invisible creatures have cloaks. Just toss your cloak over it. And... <laughs> And you won, and no, it's just a one-off. No one thinks to try it a second time. No, we have to lure them well, yeah. to the vodka pool, and and even yeah, and even try open the cases and drown and freeze them. Yeah, and even stupider, in a later Terry Nation script, he establishes that they do. God, that son of a bitch. Terry Nation? No, no. I know I'm picking. Choices. Yeah, the person driving outside. And to make it even worse, in a later Terry Nation script, he establishes that they have infrared vision so they can pick up heat traces. It wouldn't matter if you threw something over yeah. their eye. They should be able to see through it. <sighs> right. Oh, my God. Well, and the fact that they can just so easily be pushed over. like Yes. Just tip them on their side, and then they, they can't get around. You have to admit, the new series has gotten around that whole thing by having them able to electrify their outsides, which Yes, I was, I was going to ask you when that was brought in, because that's what I'm remembering in, in the new series. Yeah, they can't be touched, basically. Yeah, it's the new series. As a matter of fact, uh, Rob Shearman, um, who I think is still my Facebook friend, I'll have to check. Uh, Rob Shearman, in his excellent script Dalek, which reintroduced them in the new series, established that if you touch them, especially if you're a time traveler, they can leach the genetic DNA out of you and regenerate themselves. So it's a bad idea. And also established that the last person that touched it without gloves burst into flames. So they do have defenses to keep them from being touched like that. Now, uh, in-universe, you could argue that these are Time War Daleks, so all the flaws that they had before, they managed to work out by creating new casings that couldn't be touched like that. But yeah, there's a lot of Daleks being pushed into things with stuff draped over their eye stalks in the 70s. Yeah. And it's just ridiculous. Well, it makes them seem not very threatening, not very yeah. scary. They're, they're not. There are several different ways to kill them and usually, or disable them, and usually what makes them frightening is that the heroes try a lot of different ways that don't work, and then they figure out one thing that they can do. Yes. And you'd think that of all people, Terry Nation would know this about his own creations, but he, in this story and the next, manages to bring them down a couple pegs so they're not nearly as terrifying. Now, he'll, he'll correct that, of course, but yeah, this one... Uh, it's it's part of yeah yeah i'm sorry <laughs> what else do we have to say well, something else that it's just looking at their their design how can they see up into the exhaust space their eye stock it doesn't look like their eye stock 
Okay, because t- just looking at them, it doesn't look like they'd be able to. It does. It has. That's just it, me. <laughs> it's able to look straight up. In fact, we. Um, come to think of it, no, I'm trying to think of a single instance where we see that happen in the new series, and I can't think of one. I'm, I'm sure our listeners will let me know if I'm wrong because you, they're very good at it. But in the first story, when the last Dalek dies, it throws its eye stalk straight up. It's like, oh, so they can see directly above them. What I find interesting about that, I'm glad you brought this up, Dalton, is the idea that they're just tooling around down there, and one of them just happens to glance up and does a double take. Right. I would have loved to see a Dalek do a double take and say, oh, they're up there. In fact, it gives a little little squeak of surprise, according to Dix. It's like, oh, they're up there. (laughs) So silly. Yeah. (laughs) um the sucker being able to get that piece of paper (laughs) oh god (laughs) imagining a dalek like searching a person with just their little sucker arm (laughs) oh i know right could be foiled by a paper clip oh yeah yeah Exactly. I mean, they've. I, another thing that the new series has improved on is it's made that sucker stick terrifying because it can it can kill a person, which is just terrifying. But it shouldn't be able to pick up anything, especially a small slip of paper. And yet, that's exactly what happens. Somehow, it goes into Weber's pocket and it gets this map out of his pocket. Vacuums it right out. <laughs> I actually, I didn't think it was weird because I assumed it was suction, but maybe I was giving more credit than was due. It, you are. I mean, something that Terry Nation actually said in many interviews later was that he wished he had given the Daleks more manipulative hands. Now, granted, he wasn't the one who designed them. That was Raymond Cusick, and Raymond Cusick didn't give them more manipulative hands either, but if you think about it, in terms of the budget, for something produced in 1963. It would have been kind of difficult to do that. I mean, there are fan designs that have this kind of a metal claw instead of the sucker Mm. stick. And that makes a lot more sense because that would be useful. But they, they did what they had to in 1963, even to the point of designing the Dalek controls so that they could be manipulated by that sucker stick. By this point, however, they're back to switches on consoles that are obviously designed for humans, by humans. So yeah. And they can pick up pieces of paper. Yeah. God (laughs) Oh, God. Let's see. All sorts of things we can say about this one. All right, we covered ice canos. (laughs) We talked about Rebecca sobbing. Like the woman that she is. Yeah. It's like, oh, for heaven's sake. Uh, apparently, there is another usage of the word overhaul I was not familiar with. Overhaul? Um, they moved slowly as if very tired, and the patrol soon began to overhaul them. Like, what? They took them down to their base parts, cleaned them, and constructed them with improvements? <laughs> so, I guess that means overtake in some contexts. Uh, can you tell me what the, the paragraph says before it? The two aliens, both young and small, were standing in the middle of the track that led to the plane of stones, almost okay. as if they wanted to be seen. That's when. Uh... Uh, Latep and Joe are trying to draw them off. Thank you. That's exactly what I need. To push them into the slushy. To push them into the slushy. Exactly <laughs> the vodka right. slushy, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my. And then they God. didn't want to get out again. 
It was a blue raspberry vodka slushy. <laughs> You're right. It's overhaul. It's on page 97 for those. I'm not just trying to be cute. At first, I really was confused, and you, you figure it out easily from context. Yeah, but on page 97, yeah, they move slowly as if very tired. The patrol soon began to overhaul them. I've them never heard that. Cleaning and rebuild with improvements. <laughs> guess so. Well, it seems to work for Joe because she's really shaped up, hasn't she? Yeah. Yeah, I was not happy about that first page where we're, you know, told, she, what is it like? Very pretty and very tiny. Very pretty, very small. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and very uh, small, very stock pretty. description of her. Like, you know, curled yes. up on the floor or something. But yeah, it gets much better from there. Yeah, it certainly does. And we also spend a lot of our time in Joe's head. And it's good to see her actually thinking things through and um, the scene with the bombs, for instance, and also the scene where she's trapped behind the console waiting for the Dalek to go away. <laughs> oh, yes. It'll look like a, a rat in the Wayne's coating. <laughs> yes, exactly. The one thing does get me. She's hiding in the Thal ship. And they say that she's, she's figured out the wash basin and she's eating. And then... She happens to take her gloves off and notices that the fungus is growing on her. She mm-hmm. ate, she was eating with all, with her gloves on. She was washing her hands with her gloves on. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I'm just fixated on everything wrong with this, with this. And the, the problem is most of it is not Dix's fault. It is the original script. Because he's only working with what he's got, so I, um, I just I have pulled up the little highlight where the doctor's getting into it with Joe about leaving the ship. He says you didn't, or Joe says you didn't look very safe. I thought you were dying, so I went to find help on a planet occupied by Daleks. Surely I warned you. You didn't warn me about <laughs> yeah, anything, <laughs> Doctor. Sure I the cars, no. rattled off a quick telepathic. T- Telegram to the Time Lords and then collapsed. <laughs> you didn't tell me shit, y'all. <laughs> yeah. So yes, and yeah. That, even we were kind of confused about that because since that's not what we saw happening. No, not at all. And for that matter, it's also kind of interesting because it explains exactly what the Time Lords actually did in this whole. Show show <laughs> because it was kind of a big deal at the end of the televised story the last one that he's putting out a telepathic call for help to the time lords you figure oh they're going to do what they did in the war games they're going to sweep in and they're going to use their godlike powers to destroy the dalek forces except the three doctors establishes no they don't have godlike powers they can be taken out by not paying their electric bill <laughs> and <laughs> Apparently, all they did was just guide the TARDIS. Don't pay their invoices. Yes, exactly. And they won't be able to pay their utilities. Right. (laughs) And they apparently all they did was just guide the doctor where he needed to go. Oh, there's the thunderstorm. I just heard it. I thought something was exploding outside, but no, it's it's thunder. Lightning. Alex bursting in the air. The way you love me is frightening. You better knock, knock, knock on wood. Sorry. Getting all 70s there for a minute. I've got some sexual imagery here worthy of a Joe Kubert art school advertisement. Oh, in the dense tell. jungle behind Weber, a thick, hairy tentacle about the size of a full-grown python was stirring. <laughs> but wait, there's more. 
<laughs> Typically enough for Spiridon, the tentacle belonged not to an animal, but to a plant. At the center of the plant was a fleshy orchid-like growth some 20 feet across. The plant, like many on Spiridon, was carnivorous, and its long tentacles growing out from the center was designed to capture its prey. I'd love to see Georgia O'Keeffe do a painting of that. Well, yes, it's sort of a <laughs> um, an, an intersex plant, I think. So <laughs> yes. All the major parts. Do you have any other sexual imagery? Because if you don't, I do. Just, just that one. It's over to you. Well, over to me. The talk of all this, all these plants spurting milky fluid. Yes. Yeah, suddenly the plant spat milky <clears throat> liquid at her. Joe jumped back, but a few drops of the fluid caught the back of her hand. Yeah, occupational hazard, that. Can't get around it. One spews the doctor in the face at one point. Yeah. Or almost does. <laughs> the orgy of handshaking and back slapping. <laughs> yes, which once again, in our current situation, it does seem like high-risk behavior. Shaking <laughs> yes, hands and back slapping, and there's more than two people? What are you doing? Yes, they're not practicing social distancing. They're not even practicing safe sex. Mm-hmm. So if we'd read this in February, we would have just been somewhat contemptuous, but now it does indeed sound like kind of an orgy. And yeah, it would have passed right over our heads, so it's Oh my God! Speaking of thunderstorms passing over our heads, that was a that was a big one. <laughs> Sorry, that came out <laughs> exactly the wrong way. Good God, that's just terrible. Kind oh. of a nice line here about um, Wester taking off his. It says Wester slowly slipped the fur robe, symbol of slavery, from his body and stuffed them under a machine, protected by his invisibility, the only weapon of his people. He waited for opportunity and. I thought that that was going to be a dodge, but no, he enti- he does sacrifice himself and dies. But mm-hmm. um, I thought that was a nice imagery that he took off the robe and that was a symbol of subjugation. Yes. Ooh, so I guess yeah. I don't hate this one quite as much as you do, Tony, because I feel like there are some really lovely moments in it. Well, could you tell me which ones that you felt were lovely like that? Because obviously... Well, most I'm of the two I've just read. <laughs> that one and then the talk about uh, uh, with the doctor and Taryn about, you know, the doctor saying, it, "What do you want to be a machine? No, we actually don't want to be machine-like and we don't want machines in command and we don't want to be like the Daleks. Mm-hmm. He also has that lovely speech in the prison skull with uh, Kodal. I think that's in, yeah, it's chapter four, I think. That and his grief over uh, Joe's loss because he thinks that she's died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actually is quite affecting and Pertwee plays it beautifully and Dix really does bring it out here, which is a good thing because you have to work with what you've got and there's not a lot here to work with. It really is more of a story of human interaction, isn't it? I mean, the Daleks are really kind of secondary, and as soon as you look at their plot, it kind of falls apart really quickly. So is this the first time we've had the idea that there is a humanoid species that lives on Skaro, or no. did live on Skaro? Nope. As a matter of fact, that was in the first Dalek story. Okay, which I did um, Yep. The uh, Daleks were generational enemies of the Thals, and they had a major war, it caused great damage to the planet. The Daleks came out of it virtually unscathed. The Thals ended up mutating into more of a perfect form, which is very odd. They basically became Aryan. <laughs> they're they're yeah. all blonde. That's what happens. And this actually is the first time that we've seen them since then. We will see them again. 
but I'm not going to tell you when, because that'll spoil the surprise, even though the title of that story will spoil it for me. <laughs> but yes, yeah, we don't there know always the day ones. and we don't know the hour, but they're coming in strength and they're coming in power. Man, <laughs> I just realized that that song has a lot of sexual imagery in it for a Southern gospel song. Yes. All right, well, <laughs> thinking of small revelations. And milky fluid, yeah. Uh, well, I do like that there is a recurring gag, if a second or third time can be called recurring in so many books, of what people are dreaming about in the story. So yes, <laughs> Joe falls asleep curled up against a rock and <laughs> dreams that she's vacationing in the French Riviera. <laughs> Somehow struck me as particularly funny. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. The, the one that was so funny several books back uh, that we read last summer was guy who was dreaming that he and his wife were winning the ballroom dancing competition. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> was that Dix or was that? Oh, I God. It was no. Hulk. It probably is Hulk. Yeah, I think it, it probably Hulk. is. Yeah, I think that's Dix probably borrowing a page out of Hulk's book. And that's not a bad book to borrow pages out of for sure. It's just a shame he couldn't have given, borrowed more of them. Oh, more personal contact. Uh, let's see here. Joe held out her hand. Latep looked at it in amazement, which is what we're all going to do in a few weeks or a few months when it's okay, or a few years when it's okay to shake hands again. People <laughs> will hold out their hands, will look at them in amazement and horror. She realized she didn't know what she meant. It's an old earth custom, she explained. We clasp hands like this to show we're pleased to meet each other. But then Latep shook her hand, took her hand and shook it vigorously, which I don't think would automatically be instinctive if you're not used to someone reaching out their hand to you. <laughs> no, not at all. I don't all. think you would automatically know you're supposed to grasp it and pump it vigorously. Well, unless he remembers the exact same scene as it played out <laughs> in the original Dalek story, and he's heard that in the legend of the Doctor, Ian, Barbara, and Susan having visited the planet Scarab before. And it's nice that that comes up. I just wish Dix had kind of centered on it a little bit more, maybe had the doctor say Susan's name almost wistfully, but the moment goes very quickly on screen. Yes. It goes very quickly here too. Yes. Which is a shame. Would have been nice. Yeah, that could be it. Oh, and Latep falling in love with Joe is, what's his name, yeah. falling in love with Barbara. I know, right? Uh, I was actually just relieved that she was not remotely interested. <laughs> yeah, it's not at all. Thank no, God. No, because <sighs> that's ridiculous. I mean, I know gay men are into same seek similar, but they look too much alike, really. <laughs> Long blonde hair. It is the early 70s, after all. I have lots of notes on this one, surprisingly, even though it was very hard to actually generate them because it mainly was Dix is doing well here. This repeats the first story. Dix is doing well here. This repeats the first story. Oh, yes, the Doctor is indeed in The Power of the Daleks. <laughs> because that's the chapter name of uh, Chapter 4. But it was new to me because I had not read that first story. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I would imagine that not everyone reading this novel would necessarily have seen those episodes or, or read no. that novelization. Absolutely not. In fact, if we're 10 years on, then... The kids who would have been watching would have been too young to remember the first Dalek story. The older fans, on the other hand, I don't suppose this is the moment to ask how you got in there, he said mildly. All the same, I'd be fascinated to know. <laughs> <laughs> when he comes across the thals stuck in the... Uh... <laughs> oh, it's just hilarious. Um, the line, uh, Spiridon, one of the nastiest pieces of planetary garbage in this galaxy. <laughs> a bit hard. Yeah, just a little bit. Well, because countries. 
the, the first two or three pages that I actually enjoyed so much do describe a place that is terrifying, but has a very distinctive beauty as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we've had so many rock planets that I, I actually enjoy a good killer plant. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think I would too if we hadn't seen them so often in the 1960s. I mean, we've seen jungles before too, but not, not proportionately as many. But we saw a lot of them in Dalek's master plan because the planet Campbell, remember, had dangerous plants, was a jungle. Yeah. So how, how does the jungle look on screen? It's not bad. It really isn't, except for one problem, and it's a big one. They've done a jungle on a studio soundstage, which is fine. It means they're shooting on video and they can control the lighting. That's perfectly fine. They actually hired a lot of plants. They ended up renting them and bringing them in. And there's actual foliage there, which is quite lovely. <laughs> but then we get to the scene where they're pushing the Daleks into the ice bath. That had to be done on location. And it was done in a rock quarry, as so much location work on Doctor Who was done. It looks like a completely different place because it is course. a completely different place. <laughs> you are the more experienced fan. Like, oh, of course. Like, so, so much of Doctor Who is filmed in a rock quarry. I actually yes. did not realize that that was a frequent location that they used. It is a trope. Yeah. But alien planets are rock quarries. In fact, uh, it's, okay. a, it's a major surprise in the Tom Baker story when they actually land in a rock quarry and they have to figure <laughs> out where they are and they realize, oh, we're on Earth in a rock quarry. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, it's that hilarious. good, yeah. <laughs> Studio versus film. That's the other thing. Uh, I had to be reminded of this. There is a Monty Python sketch from the early 70s where they the characters actually realize that they're on film and no longer in the studio because it had become such a part of televisual grammar by that point that if you were shooting on a soundstage on videotape, you were indoors. But if you're shooting on film, you were outdoors. Hmm. So it would screw hmm. with people's minds if you had an outdoor setting that happened to be set in a soundstage and shot on video, or if you were in a house and it was shot on film. It, 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 it all has to do with location, all that goings on. The Tom Baker era, they finally get the technology to the point where they can shoot on video on location, so everything looks the same. But that we're, we're about two years away from that. Anyway, yeah. that's not on the page, obviously. You wouldn't know if any of that's going on from the page because Dix makes it sound like it's all one planet, which it should be. Speaking of stock descriptions, and I think Dalton, you were the one that pointed out that that's basically his stock description of Joe, very pretty and very small. He describes Latep as having an open face. And yet being also tiny like Joe in a way that... Yes. The open face bit is even more interesting. That's a phrase he's going to use in his standard canned description of the Fifth Doctor when we get there. He's always going to say he has a pleasant open face. Like a, uh, what do they call them, Texas toast sandwiches, whatever they are? <laughs> I don't know. I've heard right. this before, though, as a British description. An open yeah. face is a type of face. I, I have only kind of a general notion of what it means. I guess I you don't look like a skulking foreigner. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's that someone you can... Not French? No, no, I don't think it's quite that racist. I think it's more to do with you can read their expressions on their face. They're not hiding anything. Gotcha, okay. I wondered what that meant, so... Yeah. Whereas it I is, thought it was more like a set of features than, a, no, than, no. A, than an expression. No, no. Um, 
Latep is a very honest-looking boy, in other words, and you can tell what he's thinking and feeling on his face. Same thing with the Fifth Doctor, except it's the Doctor, so of course that's never going to be true. What else? There's the line about the Doctor cursing fluently in an obscure Martian dialect. <laughs> yes. Which, of course, never happens on screen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, we, well... We'll be getting a story with the Doctor cursing here in a little bit, but it won't be a televised story. I'll just leave it at that. It's kind of interesting, that one, but it's the only time I can think of until the new series that we ever hear the Doctor curse. But they're mild curses. He never never chokes out a bloody this or bloody that, which at the time was still considered to be cursing. The Supreme Dalek is usually presented as a red Dalek. In fact, the new series has kind of canonized that. On screen, he's only stated to be a member of the Supreme Council. And there's no mention of the Emperor Dalek at all, and nor would there be, because we only ever saw the Emperor Dalek and evil of the Daleks, and that's not a Terry Nation story, that is a David Whitaker story. I get confused about the higher-ranking Daleks. There's the oh, Black God. Dalek, the Gold Dalek, the President yep. Dalek, the Prime Minister, the King Dalek, <laughs> the Emperor... <laughs> The Emperor, the Dalek Dauphine. I, I, I do not have a good, a good sense of where they rank relative to one another. It's just occasionally a big shot blows into town, tells all the other Daleks they've done a bad job, makes examples of a few, right. and then blows back out of town. The Dalek Anastasia. Or dies. Yes. <laughs> yes. The weird thing, that that's another bizarre thing about the story. They refurbished one of the movie Daleks. Now, Allison, you've watched the movie, one of the two movies from the 1960s with Peter Cushing with me. And you remember that the design of the Daleks was very different there. They refurbished one of those and they painted it yellow and black and they put a flashlight in its eye stalk so that when its dome lights went off when it spoke, the eye stalk would also flash. But it ended up being faulty. (laughs) So when the Dalek speaks on screen, its ears and its eye stalk never flash in unison with anything it's saying. And when I heard that they were doing a CGI reconstruction of the story, I honestly hoped, I prayed that they were going to fix that somehow, but I don't think they're... uh, quite there with the technology yet. I have I have a little passage highlighted here just at the end when they're boarding the Dalek spacecraft to take off. And Taryn turned to the doctor. There's no adequate way of thanking you, doctor, but if there's ever anything we can do. Vastly embarrassed, the doctor shook his head. Then he said, wait, perhaps there is something. The Thals have always been a peace-loving people. I'd like to think they'll remain so. When you get back home, you'll be heroes, but don't glamorize your adventures. Don't make them think war is an exciting game. Tell them about the fear and the danger, the friends who won't be coming back. I think that's a really poignant passage. And that's one of those little pieces that we're talking about where it actually feels strange given everything else in here that is so just kind of slapdash and pulled from other bits. Yeah. And it's not something that comes from the original story, thank God. It's also, strangely enough, it reads better on screen than it does on the page. It's one of those few bits where Terran Six has made some changes to it, and they're not quite as strong as the original scripted dialogue, because when, when Terry Nation writes good dialogue, he actually writes good dialogue. This is, he's no slouch. He'd been doing it for quite a while. But for some reason, that scene's 
not as impactful to coin a phrase as it is on screen. <laughs> uh, just, just the very last scene with Joe, whenever the doctor is pulling up other planets, um, and then she finally uh, sees Earth. I, I can, I can very vividly imagine her being so like homesick and wanting to go back to Earth that she's just like, "Yes, home, please, Doctor." Um, <laughs> yes, I don't want to there. go to the Dalek planet. Thank you very much. That seemed like. A very bad romantic weekend. <laughs> yeah. once. Imagine the travel posters. Come live, come live on beautiful Scaro. <laughs> <laughs> There's fire yeah. and brimstone and desolation. <laughs> yeah, essentially. The weird thing about that one is that Terrence Dix also fixes a problem in that last scene. Because on screen, it's Joe that actually twiddles a control on the TARDIS console and brings up Earth. And it's like, when did she learn how to work the TARDIS console? It's almost as weird as that scene in that Troughton book where Jamie was taking over the controls. It's like, what? What? Where? No, no. No, no. Yeah. That's wrong. It should only be the doctor fiddling with his uh, knobs. Well, that's kind of a consistent issue with the companions over different script writers and different novels, novelizers, adaptationists, um, is what can the companions do or not do? They seem to kind of swing back and forth, I think all of them really, between being very clever and very stupid. Right. <laughs> and, well, and being sort of very new and wide-eyed to traveling with the doctor and being sort of experienced old hands and they'll jump back and forth from yeah. story to story. But they should never fiddle with the doctor's knobs. Heaven no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I had to get that in there. Well, he's certainly old enough. Yes, this is true. By the way, how many episodes would you say the original story was? I wasn't paying attention to when I went through. There were some part, some scenes that seemed like the obvious episode cliffhangers, but I couldn't give you a tally now. Okay. I'd guess like four. Okay. Don't yeah, four, four. four or six. It's a six-parter. What he's done is he's That's compacted. Yeah. It shows how padded the script is. Because at least when we were reading The Space War, you could tell it was a six-parter originally because there was a lot going on and we got it all on the page. But here, Dix has boiled down a six-parter into a 125-page book. And he had, it's going to be a feat that he'll repeat over and over again. And he's really good at it. But... When, it, when you've got a script that has this much padding, it's also kind of easy. Yeah. How much of a non-surprise the reveal of the Dalek is at the end of Chapter 2? Because oh, the, yeah. the name of the story is Planet of the Daleks. So we know they're in it. Yeah. No surprises there. We also knew they were coming because they're at the end of uh, Space War. Oh, I just, just the fact that the, the Spiridons all are wearing these cloaks... <laughs> I'm guessing that was just a, so you didn't. Ha they didn't have to waste money on uh, trying Invis to figure out how to make them all invisible constantly. Yes. yes, because the invisibility effects are all done with green screen. Yeah. So you have an actor who's you know covered from head to toe in some sort of green leotard, or a, a hent, not a hentai, a zentai, or something like that. Covered <laughs> <laughs> in quite sexual cartoons. Yes. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so they key the actor out, and he's holding whatever he's got to hold, and it looks like it's floating through the air. It's, you know, it's a bit of trickery, and luckily they don't do a lot of it in the televised episode. Yeah. 
the robes are hilarious because it's some sort of weird purple blue furry stuff so they look like balls of fur walking along maybe it's chinchilla yeah. fur yeah i don't know it's just really strange and they're extremely unobservant with as many times as they they get taken out and yeah. no one notices at all well except when the thought comes up to them and says hey do you, don't you think our little plan is going a little too long and one of them turns around and says hey you're not one of us yeah he also, and this this is what I wanted to point out, Dix seems to like to give the Daleks emotions. Because we have Daleks reacting meekly when the Supreme Dalek is chewing them out. We have a proud Dalek in Chapter 9. Yeah, they suddenly have all these emotions, which makes sense because they were never robotic. For some reason, Terry Nation started treating the Daleks as if they were robots, and they, they're ne they've never been robots. But it's nice to see them have that range of emotions again. Well, it's not every story where we have the casement opened and we actually see the creatures inside. Yes. So that makes sense <clears throat> that in, a, in an episode that draws attention to the fact that there are these biological beings inside, that it would also have them a bit, be a bit more personable than mm -hmm. usual. Which, again is a repeat <laughs> from the first Alex story. It's new to me, Tony, okay? I know, I know <laughs> it is. New to me. I know it is. At least in that first Alex story, though, you got to see the Dalek claw coming out from underneath the uh, thing they put it under. Whereas here, you don't see the Dalek at all. You just see them reacting to it. And that's why Dix doesn't describe it on the page. If you don't see it on screen, why describe it on the page? <laughs> oh, God, I hate this story so much. All right. Shall we go to Goodreads? <laughs> Get this <Sure>. over with. <laughs> I don't think I don't think there's any anything else to no, be there, said. There really head. is nothing else to be said <laughs> at all. As we always do. Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when you get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before we discuss it here. You might get your review read out loud, which nobody did this time, by the way. It's, I don't know why. But the average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.55, which is high higher. Than I expect. Yeah, yeah, it is high. Matthew Craigsall, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Matthew, gives it four stars and says, No less than modern-day Dalek maestro Nicholas Briggs has observed that Terry Nation's 1973 story of the Planet of the Daleks was, quote-unquote, the Daleks' greatest hits. That Nation, returning to the series for the first time in nearly a decade, reworked his earlier scripts to a large extent, creating a six-part story that feels incredibly derivative. Derivative and a little on the dull side at times, that is, on screen, at least, because Terrence Dick's novelization, published three years later, is a very different animal. Dix fixes the major pacing issues the TV version had with its series of escapes and captures having more flow in prose. Elsewhere, he's also able to fill in some of the plot holes Nation left in his TV version, and even offers up the odd bit of expanded exposition. Perhaps above all else, Dix also can paint in words those things that the BBC special effects department sometimes struggled to realize visually back in 1973. Reading this is like getting a director's cut of the story, what it would have been like if circumstances were a tad different. 
It's also a tribute to Dix, whose passing was announced a short time before I picked up this book to read, that it reads so well. It feels like a quintessential target novelization. It may not have the depth of one of the better Malcolm Hulk or Ian Martyr books, or say Mark Platt's superb expansion of Ghostlight, that's years ahead of us by the way. It is all the same an immensely satisfying and pacey tale, and one that should satisfy fans new and old. Christian Petri, I hope it's Petri or is it Petri? I have no idea. Gives it only two stars, saying, As a kid, I enjoyed the story a lot more. Upon rereading it, it feels so repetitive from other Dalek stories. Terry Nation wrote the script, and you can tell with the following checklist Jungle Planet, Dalek Master Plan. <laughs> Sneaking past Daleks inside a Dalek, the Daleks. Temporary disabling somebody by numbing their legs, the Daleks. Thaw leader learning to take action, the Daleks. Freezing an army, Tomb of the Cybermen. Okay, that last one was not written by Terry Nation, but it still shows the whole story is a mashup of parts from other Doctor Who stories. Terrence sticks again, writes by the numbers, which does not help improve the story. In summary, you get what you get with this, a recap of the TV story. One classic thing from the story is Spyridon, which comes back later in the 1993 comic Emperor of the Daleks. I remember enjoying that one when it first ran in Doctor Who Monthly, though I have to be careful since my childhood memories seem to fail me at times. Mine too. On a side note, I might have given this an extra star if Joe did leave with the Thal, then I would not have to suffer through three more stories with her. Oh. Uh -huh. Two missing adventures in the Green Death, so yeah, I guess he doesn't hate Joe. I know, right? And they said we hated <laughs> Joe and Vicky and everybody else. We don't. And finally, no, we Miles, just want more out of them. Yes, we do. We do. And finally, Miles Reed Lobato gives it three stars and says it's not great, but it's a hell of a lot of fun. Besides, Planet of the Daleks was the first two serial I ever saw back in the nineties. It's always going to be special. Yeah, I guess if this was your first one, that's one way it can be special. So here well, we go. Once again, that person hasn't seen all of those stories. That's true. Those are, those, those are equally legitimate perspectives on it. Here are all the tropes that I just saw again for the fifth time, it feels like, from the same writer mostly, versus, oh, well, this is the first thing I read and I liked it. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Well, this is the first time you've read this particular version of the story, Allison, so what did you give it? I go with a two. I mean, that is a pretty positive two. I like the opening scene setting a lot, the description of the planet, and the uh, sort of the disorientation. I, I love a good opening disorientation. Okay. And I thought that there were some good character moments in there. Uh, the, the issues with the plot mechanics, I tend to chalk up to me reading too quickly and missing the connective tissue along the way, but apparently there was no connective tissue there. Nah. To, Not very to much, miss. no. <laughs> but it didn't really bother me that much when I was reading through. It was an occasional eye roll, but yeah, too. Not great, but not not too much suffering. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, Dalton? Um, let's see, have five. <laughs> great I'm like, suffering. I'm thinking three. I'm thinking okay. three, but that, feel, that feels too high. So maybe 
2.5 if Allison's a two. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. A, a lot of the same things. It's, it's got some good character moments. There's some good descriptions of the, the atmospheres. And, and even though I didn't really know all the tropes necessarily right away, because I'm not so familiar with it, it did all at least hold together pretty well, even if things were very easily figured out. And, you know, the Ice Kano being their ultimate downfall, it's like, well, duh. Yeah. So I'd give it a 2.5. Not the absolute worst piece of trash, but still kind of meh. Yeah, because that's what Planet of the Giants or the Space Pirates, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for me, it's also, I would agree with Allison. It, this is a two. This book was hard to get through. I mean, even though I had scads of extra time and loads of time to read it because I'm stuck indoors and all of this, it was a chore. It was a chore to rewatch the story. It was a chore to reread the book. It was just a chore all around. And the only thing that leavens it, the only thing that makes it more than, say, a one, is the fact that Dix is actually doing some interesting things here and there. And the fact that even in the original script, you have those humanizing speeches with the Doctor. And Joe actually gets a really good story out of this. It's a shame it has to be this one. That's a good way to describe it. Good story for Joe, a shame it's this one. Well, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we will be discussing yet another Malcolm Hulk adaptation, but this time of someone else's script of the final story of the season, The Green Death. Ooh. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in words like spaces like a crazy person. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of choice, including Spotify, but not Podbean. If all else fails you, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't delete it by mistake. Our theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I'm I'm pissed at the dog outside who's barking. Literal, literal son of a bitch. Oh my god. <sighs> anyway. We can't hear the dog over uh, your profane remarks. <laughs> over my profane remarks. Okay, well that's good. Minimal Don't worry, you just sound crazy. Oh well, I usually I usually do. One other thing of note, for years the only version I'm sorry. There's an ambulance. We can't hear it either. Oh, now we can. Yeah, yeah. it's going to pick it up because it's coming right down my street as it always f***ing does. God, anyway. picking up the sick and infirm. Yeah. into medical care. God yeah. yeah, I know. Sons of bitches <laughs> ruining Horrible. my podcast. No less than modern Dalek doll. Ah, oh, shit. Wow, no he less- really did not like it. No, he really didn't. <laughs>